Now, I'm, usually at this point when I start our Bible study each night, I'll tell you the passage we're going to be covering, and then I'll read it to you, and we'll start unpacking it. I'm not going to read it to you just yet because I want to do a little bit of an introduction. For those of you that have ever studied Daniel, you'll know that there's actually, unfortunately, a lot of great debate about whether or not Daniel even wrote the book of Daniel. Well, I'm going to just tell you right now, and then I'm going to show you from Scripture, that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel while he was still alive. There's so much prophecy that you're going to see in this, and there's such specific prophecies that he gave that have already been fulfilled that many, and I hate to even use this term, quote-unquote Bible scholars, have argued and said there's no way Daniel could have written that. The, the specific prophecies are too specific, too literal. Whoever wrote the book of Daniel had to have written it 400 years after it happened because he prophesied about some things that were going to literally happen in that area. And he's in such specific detail, and you'll see that when we get there, they were like, there's no way anybody could know that ahead of time. It had to be written after the fact. And so even, quote unquote, Bible scholars say that Daniel couldn't have written Daniel. Well, turn with me real quickly to Daniel chapter 8. And I'm going to start walking you through the book itself to show you that Daniel wrote Daniel. And then we're going to end with a passage that's not in Daniel that settles the whole issue. In Daniel chapter 8, look at verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Who? To me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. Okay, so here he says, this vision appeared to me, Daniel. Jump down to verse 15. The author of this book says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. So again, Daniel says, I wrote this. Go to chapter uh, 8, 8, verse 27. Look at Daniel 8, verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. So again, Daniel says, I wrote this book. Go to Daniel chapter 9. Look at verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years, according to the word of the Lord, Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So again, he says, I, Daniel. Look at chapter 10. Look at verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. Look at verse 7. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. Jump over to chapter 12. Look at verses 4 and 5. The angel uh, is speaking to him. Michael speaks to him and says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and sealed the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood on one bank of the stream and on the other. So who wrote the book of Daniel according to the book of Daniel? Daniel. But you know, some people say, well, he, whoever wrote it could have pretended he was Daniel. I've got a scripture that actually settles the issue. Go to Matthew chapter 24 and look at verse 15. In Matthew 24, verse 15. Jesus is speaking. And he's talking about prophecy that we're going to get into in chapter 9 of Daniel. In Matthew 24, verse 15, listen to what Jesus says. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So who does Jesus say wrote the book of Daniel? So if Jesus says Daniel wrote the book of Daniel, doesn't that pretty much settle it, folks? The only way you could question whether or not G Daniel wrote the book of Daniel is to question whether or not Jesus told the truth. You don't want to go down that road, do you? 
Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. And by the way, that makes this an amazing book. When you realize that God spoke to and through Daniel in such specific prophecy, wait till you start seeing the stuff that's going to happen. It's an amazing study. I can't wait to show it to you. Years ago, I was sitting in seminary class. We're talking over 30 years ago. And we were sitting around uh, discussing whether or not Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And I don't want to bore you with all the seminary stuff, but there's Q theories and all these different things. Because some people say, oh, well, how could Moses write the first five books of the Bible? Because he writes about his own death and all this kind of stuff. And one day we were sitting there arguing about it and all this stuff. And I raised my hand and I said, um, Jesus said, have you not read Moses? And then he quoted from the first five books of the Bible. So if Jesus said Moses wrote it, that's good enough with me. And I actually left class. You guys can talk about this all you want. Jesus said Moses wrote it. That's good enough with me. I may be stupid enough to just believe this book. I hope you are too. Because we save ourselves a whole lot of bellyache when we stop trying to be, well, could John really have written the book of Revelation? Because he wrote the book of John, but his writing is a little bit different. And Don't you think that if you were given the visions of John, uh, that John was given on the, on the Isle of Patmos in the book of Revelation, that your writing might have been a little different than when you wrote the gospel of John? <laughs> Folks, the book was written by Daniel. Can't wait to show you the cool stuff that's in it. Now, Daniel, his last, go to chapter 10. His last recorded vision occurred in 536 B.C. All right, so he, this last recorded vision, Daniel chapter 10, verse 1, says, In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So this vision that he then goes on and talks about actually happened in 536 B, B.C., so since he's writing about it here, his writing had to have happened after 536 B.C. That's when Daniel wrote the book, sometime after 536 B.C. And at the end of his book, Cyrus is still the king of Persia. Cyrus stopped being the king of Persia in 530 B.C. Okay, and if you don't remember, the, the years prior to Jesus' coming count down, just like our years after that count up. So 536 comes before 530. So Daniel wrote the book of Daniel sometime between 536 and 530 B.C. Now, if Daniel, as we kind of think from looking at the scriptures, if Daniel's around 15 years old when he was taken captive in the first wave of prisoners from Judea by the Babylonians in 605 B.C., at this time that he's writing it, he's probably about 85 years old. All right. He was probably taken captive when he was around 15 years old. He's there for the 70 years of the, of the prophesied captivity in Babylon. We're going to get into all that. Most likely, Daniel was about 85 years old when he wrote the book of Daniel. Now, as you're also going to see in our study, Daniel rose quickly in the ranks of power and respect in Babylon, even though he was a Jew and even though he was young. He trusted, obeyed, and honored his God, the God of Israel, while he was in a foreign land, of foreign gods. It wasn't always easy, as you're going to see, but he became known and respected as God honored him in people's eyes. And one of the things we're going to take a look at, and we're going to hit on it a little bit tonight, and I'm just going to let you know where we're going. We're going to be taking a look at how God honored Daniel, even though Daniel was living in a culture that was ungodly. 
Let me ask you a quick question. Would you not agree that our world is getting more and more ungodly? Would you not agree that our nation that we love is becoming more and more ungodly? I'm going to show you, hopefully the spirit of God will open your eyes to the truth of how we can live in this world that we live in, in this culture that the Bible said was going to get worse and worse and worse and hate God more and more and more. How can we live in such a way that the world actually honors us and respects us, even though they don't agree with us and how God can be seen through us? You're going to see, though, it's going to require some change of mentality when it comes to how you look at things. And how you're going to need to realize that your view needs to be a big God view, a biblical worldview, instead of getting focused on some of the stuff that maybe you get sucked into because you watch the news too much. I'm just going to just leave that for that for, for, for right now. We'll deal with more of that later on. Go with me to John chapter 12. Hey, Daniel 8 good, but we're not getting there tonight, so... Go to John chapter 12. Look at verse 26. John 12, verse 26. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, if, any, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, will my, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the father will what? Honor him. Don't miss that. Hang on for a second. Jesus said, if anybody's going to serve me, he has to follow me. And wherever I am, there my servant will be also. Whoever serves me, my father will honor. Now, don't miss this. And you're going to see this tonight in our study. To follow Jesus and to serve him and to honor him so that he honors you means he gets to call the shots. See, a lot of us think following Jesus is, I'm going to do this for you, Lord, and I hope you're pleased and I hope you bless it. That's him following you. When you follow the Lord, he gets to determine when things work out and how things work out. He gets to, as you're going to see, let things go bad for a season if he chooses to, which a lot of times we don't want. Whoever follows Jesus must Sorry, back it up. Whoever serves Jesus must follow Jesus. And where he is, there his servant will be also. But if you follow him and you honor him, he will honor you. That's, by the way, all through the scriptures. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. Is, as you're, thank you very much. I'm going to just set the stage for you here. I don't have time to, to kind of explain fully what all is going on. But in this passage we're turning to, Eli is the priest right now at Shiloh, and uh, he has a couple of sons, and they're wicked. And God comes and pretty much speaks to Eli about what's going on. Look at chapter 2, verses 27 through 30. It says, There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? And he's talking about Aaron as his father and the Levites. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? 
Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Again, here we see it again. God says, those who honor me, I'm going to honor them. Those who despise me, oh, pretend to be following me, but really are living for themselves, they're going to miss out. And some might experience judgment. Go to Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. Look at verse 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes, makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Look at that. Oh, by the way, that doesn't mean you won't go through some trials as God is working to bring himself glory through your life in this world. And that you won't go through some hardships and some mocking and some ridicule. Daniel was honored, was he not? Daniel was esteemed and respected. You're going to see that in time. But if you also know, there were those who were actually out to get him. They made fun of him. Of course, he had to go through a lion's den. Uh, his buddies, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, you know him as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had to be thrown into a fiery furnace. You won't be spared the ridicule, but in time, if you're faithful to God and you're honoring him and your eyes are on him and you're not living like the rest of the world, but still claiming to be a follower of God, you will be honored. And what did David say in Psalm 23, verse 4? I'm sorry, verse 5. He said, you prepare a table before me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. Folks, let me just say this to you. You're going to see it in our study. I just want to lay this as a foundation. Daniel was a 15-year-old boy taken captive from his family, brought into Babylon. You're going to see tonight he was starting to be in, you know, taught in their culture and try to be corrupted into their way of looking at life and the world's way, especially the Babylonian way. Yet Daniel set his mind that he wasn't going to get sucked into what was going on around him. And he was going to be faithful to God. And as you're going to see from our study, he stayed faithful in his daily time of prayer, his daily time in the word. He was focusing on what God was look, focusing on. He wasn't looking at what was going on around him and letting that determine how he felt. He was looking at how he felt according to the bigger picture of who God was and the fact that God was in control. And even though the world tried to suck him into what was going on around them, he stayed faithful to God. And in doing so, even though through hardships, God brought glory to himself through this young man who became in power in, in, in Babylon. And even when the new people came in, the Persians and the Medes, as you're going to see happen, they even said, we've already heard enough. You're already in power. And he wasn't lined up with their way of thinking. He didn't do what they did. Did you know that Daniel's also mentioned in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11? A lot of people may not know that. Go to, go to Hebrews chapter 11. Look at verses 32 and 33. Hebrews 11, 32 and 33. The Hebrew writer says this. He's been listing this men and women of faith. And he says in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions. Daniel's listed in the Hall of Fame of Faith. 
But I'm about to show you something that's even more amazing to me. Some of you in here were part of our Ezekiel study. And it never hit me when we did our Ezekiel study, what I'm about to show you. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 14. I had never seen or thought about this in this way. But Ezekiel, if you remember from our Ezekiel study, was taken into captivity into Babylon too. Daniel was taken in the first wave in 605 BC. Ezekiel, the prophet, was taken into Babylon in the second wave in 597 BC. So Ezekiel and Daniel are contemporaries. Daniel's probably younger than Ezekiel, but they're both taken into captivity in Babylon. They know each other, right? Listen to what Ezekiel says about Daniel in chapter 14 of Ezekiel. Look at verses 12 through 20. It says, in the word of the Lord, let's go to chapter 14, verse 12. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me, by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. Now, before we keep reading, did you catch that? Ezekiel, who's living at the same time as Daniel, lists Daniel in the same sentence, in the same category with Noah and Job who had already long since died and were men of faith. He listed his own contemporary in that same line. Let me let this sink in before I keep reading. Let's just use you, Duke. Because what if, for example, someone were to say today, let's say I said it, that, man, God has given us godly men throughout the history of not only the church, but also Christianity and men and women of faith. Abraham, for example. Moses. Duke King, wouldn't that be amazing to hear someone that's alive with you, listing you with like Moses and Abraham? Those who honor him, he will honor. Wouldn't some of you say, and you've been around at the same time that Billy Graham, it's a pretty amazing guy that God used mightily, a man of faith. There are others, and you probably said it while Billy Graham was still alive. What if someone were to say that about you? Keep reading, though. He said, even if, if I decide to bring judgment on a land, if I decide judgment is coming, even if these three guys were in it, Daniel, Noah, and Job, the judgment would still happen. They'd be spared because of their righteousness. Look at verse 15. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they ravage it, and it be made desolate, so that no one may pass through the, because of the beasts, even if these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, let a sword pass through that land and I cut it off from man and beast, though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence, maybe a disease of some sort, into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness." By the way, i got to say something about this passage, not just the fact that Ezekiel would list Daniel, who was around at the same time as him, in the same sentence as Job and, and Noah. Did you catch what God said? If I've decided that a judgment is coming on a nation, it doesn't matter who's praying. But wait a minute, Jim, that goes against everything we've been taught. 
I mean, we've been taught to, to, to quote 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Let me give you two things about this that show you you can't take that as a blanket promise that we just all the church has to do is pray and we'll be all right. One, when God said that, who were his people that were called by his name in 2 Chronicles 7, 14? The nation of Israel. By the way, did God relent when it came to Nineveh? Yes, he did. Did you all notice in that story the nation repented? When God said to the people of 2 Chronicles 7, 14, when my people called by my name humble themselves, he's talking to the nation of Israel. Let's take it another step further. Let's just say hypothetically that if we in the church, the people who are called by his name, humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our sin and, and, and pray, he'll heal our nation, he'll forgive our sin. If we did that, the tribulation period would never come. Did you catch that? If we all did that nonstop, the tribulation period, which the Bible says is already in God's timing and in motion, and the end and the return of Christ, it would never happen. Now, listen, don't miss me. I'm not saying we shouldn't still pray. I'm not saying we shouldn't still seek God and seek his favor. Because if the salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? But we also need to be praying with the same attitude and the same heart that Habakkuk had. Habakkuk cries out to God in his three-chapter book. He says this, God, are you paying attention? The righteous are suffering. The wicked are prospering. God says, I want to do something. I'm going to bring a judgment on the nation of Israel because of their wickedness. I'm going to bring the Babylonians, and they're going to come and take you captive. And Habakkuk, in chapter 3, at the end of the book, pretty much says this. I don't love it. I'm not excited about it. But you're God, and I'm not. And I'll wait patiently for that day to come. Folks, you're going to see, as we talk tonight and throughout this study of Daniel... The fact that we scripturally are living in a time in which the Bible said the world is going to get worse and worse and worse. So much so that these visions that Daniel's been given about the end times that we're heading into are so severe, he passes out. He's sick to his stomach. He can't eat. It's freaking him out. Our job is to say, Lord, May you hold off the judgment that you've already said is coming on the whole globe. Could you hold it off another day? Because we want to see people come to know you. Why is God slow or seemingly slow in keeping his promise? Because he's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But don't think for a second, if we can just get America turned around, we can change things. Read your Bibles, folks. America's not going to ultimately turn around. I'm tired of hearing Christians say, we can change the world. Jesus himself said, wide's the path that goes to destruction, and many go that way. Narrows the road that leads to eternal life, and few find it. The world will not be changed. But we've been left here for a season and for a purpose. And as you're going to see tonight, God wants to use us in this ungodly culture that we live in to bring glory to himself because we aren't focused on all the other stuff that unfortunately too many Christians are getting sucked into right now. We're focused on following the God, following the Lord God, walking in the Spirit, listening to the Word, and walking with Him, and we follow Him. And whatever He says and whatever He's doing, that's where we go. Now, let's begin our study of Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 1. Look at verses 1 through 7. 
It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. That's as far as we're going to get tonight in our study of Daniel. Now before we begin to break any of this down, I have, we have to do some math. I hate math, but we have to do some math. It'll help you. You'll see in just a second. We see here that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar came and captured Judah. We got a problem. Because go with me to Jeremiah chapter 46 and look at verse two, verses 1 and 2. Jeremiah 46 verses 1 and 2. And you'll see that in Jeremiah's account, it says that it happened in the fourth year of Jehoiakim's reign. In Daniel, it says that, that Nebuchadnezzar captured him in the third year of Jehoiakim's reign. Look at Jeremiah 46, verses 1 and 2. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations, about Egypt, concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, and which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Hang on for a second. How could Nebuchadnezzar defeat the, uh, the Egyptians in the fourth year of Jehoiakim when we already saw in Daniel that he defeated them in the third year? How could he have had a fourth year of reign when he was captured in the third year of his reign? Here's the answer. The, in the Babylonian way of counting years of kingship, they never counted the first year of the king's reign, the year of ascension, if you will, or accession. They never would count that. You're going to see that. I'll show you that in scripture tonight. So even though it says that it was in the third year of Jehoiakim, the Babylonians didn't count Jehoiakim's first year. They just not how they did the math. So what, he did have four years of reigning in Jerusalem or Ju in Jerusalem and Judea. But it was in his fourth year, which as the Babylonians counted it, it was his third year. Y'all tracking with me a little bit here? I've always had trouble with, you know, when I was a kid, they always talked about we're in the 20th century. And I'm like, I thought we we're in the 1900s. How could it be in the 20th century if we're in the 1900s? And now we're in the 21st century. In the same way, if the Babylonian way of counting kingship says five, how many actually is it? Six. Remember, they don't count the first year. All right. Now, that will help you out in something we're going to look at here, something we touched on in Daniel chapter 1. Go to Daniel chapter 1 again and look at verse 5. In Daniel chapter 1, look at verse 5. It says, The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for how many years? 
three years, and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Jump over to chapter 2 and look at verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And, and as you go on in the story, they're brought before, Daniel's brought before the king in Nebuchadnezzar's second year. But hang on for a second. Didn't it just say that these guys had to go through three years of training before they could stand before the king? How could Daniel be brought before the king if he hadn't finished his three years? It was only the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. No, no, no. I'm sorry. They didn't count the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So it was actually the third year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. They, those, remember, we're only not counting the first year when it comes to the kings. So it was three years that they were go through their training. But that's how three years in chapter one and two years in chapter two come together because they never counted the first year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. So when it says the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, it was actually the third year. All right. Understanding how that all works will take care of anybody that says, well, I can find problems in the Bible. It says three here and it's two or it says four here and it's three. Well, do a little research and you'll find out God's word is true. All right. We're done with math. That's wonderful. All right. Now, let's go look closely, though, at Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And not only that, he also gave some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, Nebuchadnezzar did, that's Babylon, to the house of his God. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Do you see what the scripture says? God gave the king of Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon. We've we got to deal with this. God said, I'm going to let the ungodly king, Nebuchadnezzar, win over my people. And I'm going to give the king of Judah in Jerusalem, over Israel, into the Babylonian hands. And not only that, I'm going to let him take some of the vessels of the temple and carry it. By the way, let me just say this, and we'll come back to it in a little bit. Whenever they would take vessels from the temple of the foreign god that they just defeated and bring it into the treasury of their gods, it was their way of saying, our God's stronger than your God. Your God can't even protect his stuff. We're taking some of your people, we're taking some of your stuff, and we're putting it in our temple, in our treasury. And we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. But let's deal with this fact that the scripture clearly says God gave them into Babylonian hands. You're going to see from the scriptures that this is a very, very clear truth throughout the, not just this book, but also the whole of scriptures. Folks, I'm going to say something to you, and I'm going to show it to you from scripture. God determines who's in power. And God decides who wins elections. I got to go there. Too many Christians are getting freaked out about what happened in the past election. And they're spending all their time getting on these chat groups and fussing about the election and all the. And there might have been some underhanded stuff, but don't think for a second that God couldn't control it. The Bible says he determines who's in power. I said it this way last night as I was teaching this. I said, so if Trump didn't win, God determined that Trump wasn't going to win. This lady in the back raised her hand and she goes, but he did win. And I said, oh, I know what you're going, what you're saying. You're, you're saying that, that, that he did win, but there was 
illegal stuff that went on and they didn't count the votes right and therefore the wrong guy's in power. She goes, that's exactly what I'm saying. I said, that is a small view of God to think that God can't take care of hanging chads and people doing stuff illegally. Folks, it's time that we put in our eyes and in our heart a worldview that is a biblical worldview, according to Scripture, of a big God. Was there probably stuff that went on that we probably think isn't right? I can almost guarantee it. But that doesn't change the fact that the Scripture says God's in control of the whole thing. And if Christians are spending all their time talking about how everything was done illegally and we got to get this all turned around, you've just lost sight of the fact that your God is the one actually in control of how things go. But don't just take my word for it. Listen to Daniel chapter 2. Go to Daniel chapter 2. Look at verses 20 and 21. Daniel answers and says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So who, who determines who wins elections? God does. Go to Daniel chapter 4. It's all through the scriptures, folks. Look at verses 13 through 17. In Daniel 4, verse 13, Nebuchadnezzar is speaking and he says, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the, in the grass of the earth. And let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rule the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Again, according to scripture, according to Daniel, who determines who's in power in whatever nation it's in? God. What an embarrassment the church has been. Getting all sucked into all this other stuff. It's unfair, illegal. We don't know that the Bible says God's controlling it. Go to Daniel chapter 5. Look at verses 18 through 21. O king, verse 18, chapter 5, verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up, meaning Nebuchadnezzar's, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew... That the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Go to Psalm 75. Psalm 75, look at verses 1 through 7. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds 
At the, time set, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity, God says. When the earth totters and all its inhabitants, and all its inhabitants, it is I who keeps steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast, and to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Again, do we know what God's plan is? No, don't assume you do. But he's in control. How many of you years ago when the election hung in the balance and didn't finish that night and Florida was the reason why they couldn't count the election finished and was the whole hanging Chad time? You remember that? And isn't it amazing to me how when the side that the church wanted to win won, everybody said, God did a miracle. Didn't that what they said? God spared our nation and he made the vote go the way, even though they were trying to cheat, he made it go the way. Isn't it amazing how he can make it go the way he wants when it goes the way we like it? But when it goes the way we don't like it, all of a sudden God can't, oh, we got to get it fixed. And some people think we need to storm the Capitol to stop it. Folks, you need to go back to a biblical understanding God's in control of how this world goes, and his servant must follow him. And where he goes, that's where we're going to be. And whoever honors him by following him and not their own agenda, he'll honor. Go to Romans 13. Look at verse 1. Look at Romans 13. Look at verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Folks, let me just give you a little commercial for where we're going to go in this study. The reason why Daniel lived the way he did and was glorified and honored in Babylon is because he didn't spend his time trying to get back to Israel. Did you all notice that? When the time came... And God, through Cyrus, made the decree that they could go because the 70 years was over. Daniel went back. But how come during those 70 years of captivity, he didn't spend his time trying to get back to to Israel? God had made a prophecy that the Babylonian captivity was going to be 70 years. And if God said it, I think we said it in our study of Matthew. um, God's word is sure. God's word is true. And what he said is going to happen will happen no matter how much you think otherwise. And because Daniel believed that God said they were going to be in captivity for 70 years, he realized he's going to be there for 70 years. Folks, the Bible says things are going to get worse. And I believe it. Therefore, I'm not out to try to change things. I'm out to let people know about Jesus and who he is and what he's done and have them get ready for the world that is to come. Because there is a judgment coming on this world. Noah was faithful in the time that he was given. God had already said, a judgment coming, and it ain't stopping. And you can pray all you want, because I think, didn't we read from Ezekiel, even if Noah is in that nation that the judgment's coming on, it doesn't matter. But what did Noah do in the days that he had? He preached. And he was obeyed to God, and he built the ark, and he preached, and he said, a judgment's coming, a judgment's coming, a judgment's coming. By the way, who listened? 
only his family. But he was faithful, and God honored him. Again, don't get sucked up in all this other stuff. Say, Lord, how would you let me be used of you in these days so that they would see you? Like I touched on in Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar also took some of the gold vessels and silver vessels from the temple of God and put them in the treasury of the Babylonian god Bel or Marduk. Sometimes he's called Merodach, proof that their god was greater. Why would God allow the temple items to be taken, folks? I mean, we can see that the humans were disobedient and deserving of losing their position. But why would God let the Babylonians think they're gods who aren't gods at all? We're stronger. Wouldn't he want the Babylonians to know that he, Jehovah, is the only true God? I mean, why also were these young boys who really hadn't done a whole lot of the stuff that their forefathers had done that brought the judgment? Why were they allowed to be taken captive? And why were the golden and silver vessels taken out? I mean, it makes God look bad. It makes God look weak. He's going to use, as you're going to see, the vessels that were taken into the treasury to bring glory to himself. And... He's also going to use the people that were taken into the ungodly culture to bring glory for himself. See, we think we have to defend God and we have to, he looks weak right now. We got to make him look stronger. Oh, let me say something to you. He can take care of himself. He doesn't need us to make him look strong because he might look weak. All through the scriptures, what do we see? Psalm 37 is full of it. Uh, Don't fret over the wicked. They're not going to be here forever. In time. God will make all things right. And folks, as you're about to see from the scriptures, God's really capable of taking care of defending his own honor. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Uh, Go to um, 1 Samuel chapter 5. God even allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be taken captive. Go to 1 Samuel 5. Let me read two verses 1 through 12. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, They brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen down face face forward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, bowing before God. So they took Dagon and put him back on his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon don't tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of God of Israel must not remain with us. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought the ark around to, brought around to us the ark of God to, of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up into heaven. Do you think God can take care of himself? He allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be taken captive. 
And he handled his own honor quite well, even to the point that every city it was brought to, instead of them going, hey, let's bring it here and let's celebrate that we conquered it. They're like, don't bring it here. Word had already spread. Let me just tell you, folks, one day every knee is going to bow. One day every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord, the glory of the Father. He's able to defend himself. He doesn't need us to do that. He just wants us to trust him and to walk with him. And he'll use us to bring glory to himself. Go to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 9, and then we're going to jump to verses 22 through 31. And Daniel chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 9. King Belshazzar, this is the son of Nebuchadnezzar, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple and in the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines, concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. Jump over to verse 22. Daniel's now speaking and he says, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which don't see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, and your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom that very night. Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. God took those vessels that he allowed to be taken captive into the treasury, made him look bad for a while, but he's, he's okay with it, because he knows in the end, they're all going to acknowledge him. And he used those vessels to bring him glory. By the way, this is where Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah and Mishael being taken captive come into play as well. We could all say, well, that's not fair. These were young boys. Uh, they were taken captive because they were good looking and smart and wise. And they were in the royal family and nobility. And what had they done? But they were taken captive in the first wave away from their family and brought into a boarding school where they're going to be corrupted in the ways of the Babylonians. And where's, where's the justice in that? What's God doing? Why is God being so unfair? How many of us, when we don't like how things are going, and the Bible says he controls all the affairs. 
What's God doing? The same thing that he was doing with those vessels, he's going to bring them into this situation to bring him glory. Now, we don't have time to turn there. But God's going to use these captives, taken just like the vessels, to bring him glory. They will be used by God to show the Babylonians and the Persians that the God of Israel is the only true God. By the way, you know some of the stories, don't you? Did God use Daniel in the lion's den to show that he's the only true God? Did God use, we know him as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace to show that he's God? Oh, and not only did that, he even gave us a glimpse of Jesus. God did some cool stuff through suffering. God's been having me preach recently into a group of men, men in motion through the book of Psalms. Not Psalm, not the book of Psalms, Psalm 23. We've been breaking down Psalm 23 into little sections. We got to the middle section where it talks about how he leads us by uh, still waters and he has us lie down in green pastures. Doesn't that sound great? I mean, unless you get a nap on a green grass and, and you can drink from the still water where it's safe and he restores our soul. He leads us in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow, wait a minute, hang on a second. How do we end up in the valley of the shadow of death? You were leading me by still waters and, and green pastures and restoring my soul. How did we end up in the valley of the shadow of death? The answer is, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Don't miss that. The paths of righteousness are the trials, are the suffering, are when things don't go the way we want or the way we voted those are the paths of righteousness. If you were to go look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11, God says, you've forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. He disciplines those he loves. And if you're not being disciplined, you're not his child. And then he says, all discipline is not pleasant at the time. But later it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Would God have gotten glory? If Daniel had been crying, help, help, when he's in the lion's den? Would God have gotten glory if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we're afraid of that furnace and we're more afraid of the furnace than we are of our God and they bowed down? No. Would God have gotten glory if Paul and Silas hadn't been singing in that prison at midnight after having been illegally arrested, illegally beaten? Folks, I could go on and on. Is not the Bible full of examples of men and women who have gone through things in this world that weren't fair in their eyes, but God used it to bring himself glory? Whoever serves me must follow me. And the Bible actually says in the book of Peter that Jesus gave us an example. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. But he humbly submitted himself to the one who judges justly. Are things in this country and in this world going like you probably don't want? Don't try to fix it. You look to God who's in control. And if he chooses to bring glory to himself and turn things around for his glory, he will. And he'll get the glory. Not us because we came up with a strategy and emailed a bunch of people and texted a bunch of people and got social media going. So we got a movement going. No, he, he doesn't need us. And if we did that, he doesn't get the glory. We do. Oh, well, 
Let's go real quickly to the names changing. We've got five minutes. Listen fast. We're going to deal next week with their food because that's what the next verses are going to deal with specifically. We're going to deal next week with the food. But let me make you a little commercial. I'm not going to teach you to become vegetarians next week. I'm going to actually show you that Daniel did eat meat at other times and stuff. They're going to deal with that. But they changed their names. Daniel, his name was God is my judge. And it was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel or their God, Bel, protect the king. Hananiah's name meant the Lord is gracious. And his name was changed to Shadrach, which means command of Aku, another one of their gods. Mishael, whose name meant who is like the Lord. His name was changed to Meshach, which is who is what Aku is. Azariah, his name meant the Lord is my helper. His name was changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo or Nego, depending on how you translate it, which was their god of vegetation. He's actually mentioned that false gods mentioned in Isaiah 46.1. You'll see it mentioned there. Why were they changing their names? They want to pull them away from their worship of their God to a worship of their gods. You understand what I'm saying? Their names were pointing to the God of Israel. We want to take that away even out of your memory. And we want you to start worshiping our gods. By the way, let me just tell you, Satan's strategy hadn't changed. The world today is still trying to corrupt and to pull us away from a true devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's using social media. He's using the Internet. He's using TV. He's using radio. He's using all sorts of stuff. And by the way, I'm not saying these things are bad things. We're to be in the world, but not of it. And that's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual act of worship, our reasonable service. And we're not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but by the daily renewing of our minds, we're to know what His will is. How do we renew our minds? How do we renew our minds? You spend time daily in his word and through prayer. Let me read to you a passage of scripture real quick. If you want to try to catch up with me and follow it, you can. But in Psalm 119, this was the first passage of scripture that I started to get in my heart when I was a young boy. In Psalm 119, verses 9 to 11, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding, guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You're going to see in our study that Daniel and his friends were faithful to their prayer time. Were faithful to their study of the word. And that kept them from being sucked into the culture of their day. Folks, it's happening all around us. You know, 1 Peter 5 tells us that we're to submit ourselves to God and humble ourselves before God because we have an enemy who's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But we're to resist him. We're to be strengthened in the Lord. Let me close tonight with Hebrews chapter 11. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. By the way, if you're with us tonight for the first time, we're going to start at 7 and we will finish at 8 every week. You can count on it. In Hebrews chapter 11, look at verses 24 through 26. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Would you not agree that Satan tried to corrupt Moses into the Egyptian way of life and the culture? But Moses was wise enough to say, even if that means I lose all the privileges of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, 
I'd rather be known with the people of God who are the slaves who are rejected because there's something greater and it's going to last forever. And I'm living for that. Folks, I love our country. I'll look you right now and tell you right now I voted for Trump. And I pray for our nation. And I want to still be able to live here in a place that is allowed, we're freely allowed to worship him like we are right now. But I'm going to tell you this. I'm not living for here. I'm living for the world to come. And I want, however my life ends, for people to say, Jim cared more about God and his word than he did anything else. Maybe one day, someone might even list me with Noah and Job. Maybe you too. I love you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.